0: Family, family's a big deal. You know, in our family, um, if we're friends online at all in anything, almost every picture that we post with our kids or our family, we tag it Team Jenkins, because that's just, that's who we are, we're team, and that, that thought process was really kind of solidified for us a few years back. We were uh, uh, spending some time at, at Big Cedar there outside of Branson, Missouri, And we went to the sales pitch. You know, you go stay there for free, but you got to go sit through the three-hour sales pitch, right? So we went and did our part, did our turn. So we go over, and Rachel and I are sitting there, and our presenter was fantastic, really enjoyed it. Uh, So his name was Brandon, and Brandon was very engaging as he's doing his pitch. And he says, you know, uh," he played professional baseball, and then after professional baseball, he transitioned into the front office there for the team he was playing for, And his story really kind of captivated and solidified for us what it meant to have a team and that our family was a team. And so as he's telling the story, um, again, very convincing. He almost convinced me to buy. (laughs) Almost. But then Mr. Budget said, ain't no way, buddy. And I listened. Okay, so, uh, you know, good news there. Okay, so he's given his pitch and he's given his sales thing. And he talks about how he had gotten married while he was still playing ball and then when he trans- transitioned into management and working for the team, he's gone all the time, uh, on the road, scouting, do- doing his job. He's never home. He's never there. Um, and he just keeps telling him. well, his father and grandfather are both Assemblies of God preachers. He wasn't really too interested. He was having the time of his life, living out every, um, every kid's dream that's played baseball, and that was something that he was loving. Everything he wanted was there. He was interested in making as much money as he could, gaining as much notoriety as he could possibly garner. Well, one day his grandfather calls everybody and says, all the boys, all of his grandkids, his sons, and says, listen, I want you all to come to California where he lived. I've rented an RV. You're going to take off work for two weeks. We're going to make a 14-day road trip. We're going to go from California all the way to New York to watch the Yankees play. Because he played for the Yankees when he was a kid. So we're going to go watch the Yankees play. Well, when they get home, Grandpa sits everybody down. And, and by Brandon's own admission, Grandpa was his very best friend. So he starts in, guys, I need to tell you something. This trip was really important to me because it's the last two raw. And they all kind of looked at him because he was the picture of health at the time. He said, the doctors diagnosed me with a very advanced stage cancer. It's stage four. I've been given a matter of months, if not weeks, to live devastated everybody. Once they had their cries out and everything, everybody had gone except for Brandon because Grandpa had asked him to stick around. And he says, Brandon, I want to talk to you. He says, okay, Grandpa, what's happening? He said, "It's a great trip, wasn't it? Absolutely. We're best friends, right? You know it. He says, okay, best friends tell each other the truth, don't they? Yeah. Best friends tell each other the truth, Grandpa, you're right. He said, okay, then I want to tell you the truth about how you have wrecked your family. You're never home. Your kid doesn't know you. Your wife is married to a stranger, and you are a foreigner in your own home. Your family's a mess. And Brandon, feeling a little taken back, because here his grandfather's telling him he's doing everything all wrong, said, Grandpa, I'm sorry. I am just fine with the life I have, living it out on baseball, on the road, doing my thing making money. My kids one day will appreciate the fact that there is a bank account one day that has their name on it for an inheritance, and it's going to be just fine. And if anybody doesn't like that, that's their own problem. Don't project your feelings onto me. And he said, that's fine. You're entitled to your opinion. But I've got one more question for you. How's your team doing? Well, Brandon immediately launched into a whole new thing. Man, the Cubs are doing fantastic, and we just signed this prospect, and this rookie is really doing something special. It just goes into stat after stat after stat after stat. When the Cubs were terrible, again, when they were terrible, Ted, if that was for you, when they were terrible, he was, had hope that one day the Cubbies were going to win it because he worked for them, and it was a big deal. And his grandpa stopped him right in the middle of it and said, no, 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 Brandon, you're missing it. I'm not talking about that team. I'm talking about your home team, that team that lives under your roof. The most important team you're ever going to have. How are they doing? Well, that phrase stuck with Brandon. That whole process of, man, that's a team. He had never thought of it that way. And he said, you know what? I need to do something about my team. I need to invest. I need to make a difference in their lives. I need to do what it takes to see an improvement happen there. Well, his grandfather passed away six short weeks later. Two years beyond that, his wife was diagnosed stage four breast cancer. And Brandon realized, God, you've been trying to get my attention. I'm going to pay attention. And he walked out of the front office of baseball and walked into the front office of his home to lead his family, to love his family, and to do what God had called him to do. That story, I've sat in a lot of those sales pitches, right? Because when I was a kid, that's how we traveled on vacation. We was poor growing up, right? So that's how we went. We would go and we would listen to those. I've never sat and cried in one of those until that one. And he started crying. He goes, I'd never do this. Wiped his tears and walked (laughs) walked out the door. That phrase stuck with us. It's a team. I love teams. Teams are important to me. I grew up playing playing on teams. They mattered, but I had never once thought of my family in those terms. But that solidified for Rachel and I that, you know what, this is a team. We all have to work together. We can't rely on one superstar to make every decision and do every possible thing for us. We have to all come together to accomplish what God has for us as a family because we're one big team and we're working together. That's a big deal to us. That's why we talk about families around here. That's why we have teams that you can volunteer for because we all have to work together to make it happen. That's why a few weeks ago we had a big team meeting because we're all doing this together, right? And it takes each of us working together and relying on one another to make a difference, I just so happen to believe that families are the number one target for the enemy today. I believe it's been that way since day one, but I think we realize it in a much stronger capacity now. Because if he can attack and diminish the family, think of everything that has happened. He's brought down families. He's brought down uh, our school systems. He's eroded the moral fiber of our country. He's done all kinds of stuff by attacking the family. You know, there was a day not too long ago when the, the um, divorce rate was very low and the number of dads that were at home was very high. And now you see that totally reversed. The number of dads who are still at home with their kids is very low and the divorce rate is very high. He's attacked the family and he's done it very, very well. And he's splintered all of that. So with that being the case, and the family of God is supposed to be The family is supposed to be the closest representation of what the family of God is supposed to look like. I want to talk about the family today from from the idea of the fall of the first family. I hinted at this last week. I couldn't help it, sorry. But I hinted at this last week because it's just so important that we grasp it that there are things that have entered in since the fall of the first family that are still here today. So we're going to look at that, um, at the fall of the first family, not the Trumps, not the Obamas, not the Bushes, both of them, not the Clintons, not any of them, okay? Pass the White House back to the Garden House, and we're going to look at some of the things that happened there, because when we look at the fall of Adam and Eve, we're going to see the consequences of those actions there in the Garden of Eden. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter number 3. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time today, is in Genesis 3. You'll be able to follow along on the screens if you'd like, but we're going to begin in verse 1 and read on. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her. Note that who was with her and he ate it now I don't know about you but if my wife cooks something and tells me to eat it I eat it that's a trait that goes all the way back to the garden as well okay verse 7 then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze and they hid themselves from the Lord among the trees in the garden. So the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? As if he didn't know. And he said, I heard he and Adam said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Here's the thing. When they ate from that tree, there were several things that entered in that uh, they had never been a part of the earth at that time. They were never part of the world. The number one thing was sin. The number one consequence, sin entered in. Sin separates us from God, and with sin came a whole bunch of other mess, okay? A whole bunch of other downfall and mess began to spiral out of control right then. Because before this moment, everyone on earth was in a perfect, whole, intact family the way it was designed. But in a matter of moments, a matter of two bites Now, I don't know about your family and your house, but two bites in my family and my house, about like that. A matter of two bites, everything came spiraling, uh, crushing down. Now, when that happened, every family on earth was forced into, because of these two bites, is forced into this broken and splintered family unit. It doesn't matter how good of a parent you are to your kids or how good your parents were to you. All of our families have broken and and flawed issues. You know why? Because sin is in the earth. As good of a father as you are, you are not perfect. As wonderful as a mother as you are, you are not perfect. And as wonderful as your mother was to you, she wasn't perfect. None of us are because we live in a fallen world. So with sin, the failure of Adam and Eve, there were three things that entered in. Shame, blame, and fame. We're going to look at these today uh and, and, and an in-depth approach because i want us to get how they affect us still today and we're going to begin by looking at blame uh shame i'm sorry we're going to be, begin by looking at shame shame is this really powerful emotion that happens and it's the number one characteristic that gets deposited in us because of sin it's the number one issue that we face but let's see why I, I remember back at verse 10 god says who told you you were naked who said you were naked It's something, that thought process of being naked is something that we see over and over in the Bible. In fact, in Revelation 3.18, it says, I advise you to buy from me white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. He wants to cover our shameful nakedness. Well, what is that? Here's the thing. We We learn shame really quickly as kids, right? Most of the time, it's not the consequence of sin. It's the consequence of awkward moments when somebody walked in on you. It never fails. You can tell a kid who's struggling with shame every year at camp because they take a shower in an enclosed, completely covered, uh, uh, personal, private showering area, fully clothed because they're terrified somebody's going to walk in on them because they've had an issue of shame that's developed in their lives. We learn shame a lot of times as kids because of those things. We feel ashamed that somebody's going to walk in on us or, or because we, we think it's maybe because our body type's not right. We're too skinny. Yes, I said we. Don't look at me like that in that tone of voice. Yes. We feel one way or the other. You know, I'm too skinny or I'm too fat. We, we feel this awkward emotion and shame produces that. The thing about shame is it produces fear and fear produces a cover-up. When we get afraid, so we've got to cover that up because we don't want somebody to see who we are. And God says, I will cover your shameful nakedness with my white clothing, with what I have to offer, which is salvation, because that's what it is. See, what, Adam and, what did Adam and Eve do immediately once shame entered in? They covered up. Hey, oh, hey, we've got to cover up. This ain't going to work, right? But they were married. Our spouse is supposed to be the one person that we can be naked and unashamed in front of because they love us for more than that, right? The Bible doesn't say they had kids at this point, so we're to assume they don't. It's not like the kids were going to... I've never known anybody who was ashamed to be naked in front of their dog. It's just, it's just not what we do, right? So the animals around us. It's, it's the way... In marriage, our spouse is supposed to be the one that we can be naked and unashamed in front of. They love us for more than our physique. It's the way it's supposed to work. So again, God says, who told you you were naked it was a sense of shame that came with the sin that they had committed that happens to all of us who told you that you were naked we carry this physically we carry it spiritually because we're naked because shame is there now obviously we should have a sense of modesty i'm certainly not advocating that we become a nudist church please don't (laughs) security can help you out to the police car It'd be no problem so I'm not advocating that, but Isaiah 61.10 tells us this. It says, I greatly rejoice in the Lord, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. See, back in Revelation, it said that we need clothes to cover our shameful nakedness, and Isaiah 61 says that he, he clothes us in a robe of righteousness. That's salvation. That's him bringing it all together, because the only solution for our spiritual nakedness is God's own righteousness, and it's the only thing that can cover our shame, because our righteousness will never do it. Our own righteousness, your own self-righteousness can never cover the shame that's produced by sin. Now, I've struggled with shame in my own life. I have struggled with it severely. Uh, As a teenager, I was a very immoral young man, uh, and I felt shame greatly, because I wasn't proud of my immorality like my friends were because I had been raised differently. I knew better. It wasn't that my sinful nature was different than theirs, it was just that the shame that came with knowing what I had done haunted me. In fact, it haunted me for a long time. I felt like, well, I knew God had called me to ministry, but how can God ever use me with what I've done? I felt like my, mine was so much worse. I felt like what I had done carried so so much greater consequences, and I felt great shame because of that. I'm just curious, how many of you here today are courageous enough to say, I've dealt with shame? I have felt that. Hang on one second. I want you to keep your hands up for one second, okay? And I want you to look around at all the sinners that attend Harvest. (laughs) Now, I say that because we all feel it, right? Because we're all the same. Because without the righteousness of God, shame eats us up. Without God's righteousness keeping us, it prevents us from becoming all that God wants us to be. So the devil's really good at taking that card and saying, hey, listen, there's nobody who's done what you've done, Travis Jenkins. If everybody knew how much of a sinner you were and everything that's in your past, there's no way. And, and, and he's right. Nobody knows. You know what my answer to that always is? You're right. You are absolutely right, devil but god he knows And there was a but God moment where he stepped in and brought salvation and clothed me in righteousness and said, this is my child and I don't have to live with the shame that came with my sin that covered me for so long. I can move on and be be past that. That's why 1 Peter 2, 24 says that he bore our sins on his body when he went to the cross. And Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that he bore the shame of the cross for us. So in his body, he took our shame, he took our sin and he took it to a cross so we no longer have to live with the consequence of the shame you don't have to allow it to rule your life now before we move on to blame i want to just interject here because parents shame is a really powerful tool one that if we're not careful becomes the easiest tool to go to to correct our kids and it's the most damning tool you can use Because it teaches them to hide everything they've ever done and to cover up. Don't do that. Take the time to discipline out of love and discipline correctly. Do it God's way. And if you do, see, the the problem is we think, oh, shame and embarrassing them, that's easy. It gets the result I want right now. But in the long run, it doesn't because kids rebel against that. And they learn that that's the only way they can get attention. So don't do that. Instead, discipline them God's way, the way God's word teaches and do it according to his word and I promise it does two things. Number one, they will respect you. But number two, they won't see God's discipline as something to avoid or be ashamed of. Take the time to discipline correctly, it matters in the long run. So, not only did shame enter in the world and the fall of the first family, so did blame. And blame's a big deal. In Genesis, continuing on in, in verse number 11. He's, then he asked, God said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate. I did it. I, I, yeah. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And what does she say? It was a serpent. He deceived me and I ate. What's the man do? It was her and you. God, this is really all your fault. You brought her, you gave her to me, she tricked me just like everybody else. It's their fault, not mine. What does she do? (laughs) Lord, don't look at me. He shifted the blame, and what does she do? She shifts it right back to somebody else. It wasn't me. It was that silly old serpent. The snake did it. And what does God say? You're all going to pay for it. Why? Because you can't blame your way out of accepting the responsibility that comes with it. Here's the thing that happens, right? Notice, notice this, okay? Immediately when they sinned, they were separated from God. That's when the spiritual death began to spiral out. That's where death entered. Immediately they were separated from God, but they were also separated from each other. It's her fault. They had been one, right? They had been all together. What does Adam do in one sentence? Blames two people. What does Eve do? She blames the, 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 the snake. Why do, what do we do whenever something goes wrong? What, we, we tend to run to this. God, this is your fault and their fault. If I had done what I wanted to do and not followed your way, then we wouldn't have ended up in this mess. We blame God and we blame the people who have been a part of it. And we struggle with that. It's not my fault that I'm the way it is. If you knew what they did to me and we hide behind that, here's the problem. If you fall to shame and you feel shame from from sin and from issues in life, you will fall to blame. And you'll sit there and you'll go, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. It's their fault. This is not the way, or, or, or we do this. We can be really good at this. We take all of the blame. Yeah, this is all my fault. I did every part of it. I deserve, and we, we get into this sulking thing, right? Woe is me. It's my fault. I deserve everything, I, right? Remember how your kids used to do that to you? No, don't, don't, don't give into that. Again, I, I've struggled with this, the blame thing. Rachel said, hey, could you stop leaving your shoes in the living room? Sure, I can stop leaving my shoes in the living room if you'll get all the clothes picked up out of the closet. (laughs) Never mind that they were my clothes that had been sorted to be washed, and I didn't have anything to do with that. But we shift the blame, right? We're we're, we're good at that. Don't look at me like you've never done it. (laughs) You've done it too. We all have moments where we shift the blame. It's it's part of growing out of that thing. Or, Or sometimes it's like this. Who is supposed to take care of this? Instead of just picking it up and doing it, I'm looking for the person to blame that was supposed to have been responsible. Instead of just saying, you know what, let's get it done. It doesn't matter. Let's move on. We've got to move past the blame game. It doesn't matter. Stop shifting the blame. Sometimes it manifests like this with our families, right? Our kids will come to us and say, Mom, I've got a bad grade. But it's not my fault. The teacher doesn't like me. And if the teacher liked me, I would have a better grade. And I would. And you're like, never. No, that is not true. You are homeschooled, and I am your teacher. (laughs) Right? Or, 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 or we give into it and go. You know what? She probably doesn't like you. I'm going to move you schools. We're not going to have this. That they should treat you. And we give into the same thing. Don't play the blame game. Don't buy into that. Another word for blame is accusation. You really want to know where the blamers? everything results in and should uh, all the blame should rest think about who's the accuser of the brethren give it all back and move on from the blame game it really is the devil's fault it originated with him so move on from that so you can let go of of shame and of blame and then thirdly the thing that entered in the third gift sin left us if you will is fame this desire to want to be known I want to be be important. I want to be recognized. In verses 14 through 19 there in Genesis 3, God lays out the consequences of their sin, right? He says, hey, this is is what is going to result because of what you've done. And as he does, he gives them the curses that they brought on themselves. Notice what Adam does immediately following that in verse number 20. It says that Adam named his wife Eve. He named her. That doesn't seem like a big deal, right? It's a huge deal. Let me show you why. Because he immediately separated from her. You're probably sitting there looking at me like, I've ever known her as Eve. Did you know that's not what her name was? There are only two creatures in all of creation that Adam didn't name. Himself and his wife. Believe me? Kind of looking at me like I'm kind of crazy. It's okay. My kids look at me like this all the time. Let me prove it to you. Genesis chapter 5, verse 2 in the King James, and it says it correctly. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam. Called their name Adam. They were one. Right? Right, right before the fall, what does Adam say? She is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. This is woman, part of me, right? And here he's separating from her and saying, no, 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 no. you are going to be Eve. You, if you don't understand the, the, the significance of this, let me show you. He says, you're going to be Eve because he's introducing labels that we have lived with all throughout history, right? You are going to be Eve, the mother of all living. In other words, here's your job, Eve. It's to bear children. Here's your role. This is what you're to do. We love labels. Let's be honest. We like them, right? Because we like to say, oh, that's Joe Blow's kid. Or that's so-and-so's little brother. Or you know them. They've always been the black sheep of the family. You, you recognize that person, right? There's no denying that my family, my brother, and my dad and I, we all look very, very similar. You could pick us out of a crowd of three if you didn't know us, right? Because we have characteristic traits. But we all thrive and and want to find our own purpose and our own calling and know that there's something special for us. It's an issue that we've had for 6,000 years. And a lot of times men struggle with this because we like the idea that our wife is going to be at home taking care of us and providing for us and doing what we want. And really, if we're honest, we really kind of like the idea of having a servant. And that's not at all what God wants. God has a purpose for you, ladies. He has a purpose and a plan that is beyond being a mother and a wife because he's gifted you. Now, maybe those gifts and those uh, 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 purposes thrive in the home, and that's great. But maybe God has a purpose for you to be a doctor or a lawyer or or a caregiver or a nurse or, or a homemaker, whatever God's purpose is, live that out. Be okay with that, that God wants something from you because your highest calling is not to be a mother. Your highest calling is to be a daughter. The daughter of the king, a child of God. There is no greater calling for any of us. Don't settle for where we have labeled people forever. Labeling's been around forever, but we like it, and we've got to let it go. Because here's one of the issues that comes with it. Another issue, another way that fame works, is it creates and breeds competition, Look back in Genesis 3.16. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains and you will bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband, yet your husband will rule over you. Now, your desire for your husband sounds good, except yet it will, he will rule over you. And the guys got excited, yes, he will rule over you because we're missing the whole point there. Here's the problem. Both of these are part of the curse. Curse. We're supposed to be servant leaders at home and not be dominant and not be ruling and rule over one another. It's not the way it's supposed to work. When it says that your desire for your, will be for your husband, the word in the Hebrew means much more than what you're thinking. According to the Biblical um, dictionary of biblical languages, the Hebrew word here is only used three times in the Old Testament. And it means a strong desire. This strong desire may refer to sexual urges or desires, a desire to be dominant Or to be independent of the man. Ladies, your desire to be dominant, uh, to dominate your husband, will rule over him, but he will rule over you. And that's all part of the curse. Please hear that. The second time we see this word is when Cain and Abel have have presented their sacrifices. Um, Abel's offering was accepted, but Cain's wasn't. God could see in Cain's face that he was upset and mad that his was was not accepted and approved. And he was ticked off, right? And in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It's crouching. It's desire. It's desire. That's the same one. It's desire is for you but you must rule over it that's the thing sin wants to be our ruler it wants to create that space in our life to rule over us and it breeds this competition we do it in marriage right how many of you on the way to to church this morning or this week with your spouse have said no i'm right i i know you remember the story that way i know you remember every detail about the story but i'm right I, I know you remember what I wore that day. I'm just telling you, I have the microphone. I'm right. We do that, right? No, no, no. And we, it breeds this competition. It breeds this idea that we have to be the one who's ruling. It's not the way it's supposed to be. The problem is we live in a competitive world, and when that's the basis for everything we do, it creates a problem. And all of this goes back to the fall of the first family. It all goes back. So what's the answer to dealing with these physical and spiritual tendencies? Well, it's found in Jesus, but let's get a little bit more specific than that. Jesus was born into a family, into this world, in a family. And not only that, but a broken and messed up family that was going to create more questions. That's where Jesus came, right in the midst of all of that. Why would he do that? Because he came to repair our brokenness and heal our homes moving us forward without shame, blame, and fame crippling us. I want to remind us, the very first characteristic of sin that was produced is shame. Shame is crippling. And I believe it's one that we need to deal with today. Let me tell you a story about William Cowper. He was an English hymnist who wrote a ton of hymns and poetry. He was a man who had a bad past and was immoral, but one day he encountered the grace of God and became a new person, a whole new creation. He was saved, began to live for God. Well, he was selected to serve as the clerk for the House of Lords. It'd be like the clerk for Congress, okay? He was selected to be the clerk for the House of Lords. He was excited, but he found out that there was going to be a public examination of his life and that his immoral past would be brought up. He became so ashamed of his past and so crippled by what that meant that he began to to be overwhelmed by it and thought to take his life. So he climbed to the bell tower there in the, the church there in town and was going to throw himself over it, but he just couldn't do it because he was too afraid of heights. So he thought, that's a terrible way to die. I'm not going to do that. So he went and bought a vial of poison. He, as he's going home to drink the poison, he drops the vial and it breaks and all of the poison spills out. So he thinks, well, then I'm going to take a knife and I'm going to cut my wrist or plunge it into an artery and let it bleed out and I'll die that way. And as he attempted it, the blade broke. Frustrated and completely exhausted from all of these failed attempts to end his life, he fell asleep exhausted. And at three o'clock in the morning, he woke up with words running through his mind. And he got up and he began to write them down. And they go like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. One of the great hymns of the church was written that still applies today. And William Cowper went on to say that God set him free from shame of his past. And he went to the public examination and boldly shared about his immoral past and how the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sinful past. It's said that in that very moment, many gave their life to Jesus and he was known from then forward as somebody who openly and publicly and boldly declared the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and the tendency for shame that was imparted into our lives in the fall of the first family has crippled you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, You know, coming into today, I wasn't sure which route I was going to land on. And I actually took the time to write out three different altar calls for shame, blame, and fame. Because I wasn't sure the direction that the Lord was going to take us. But I'd really have just settled in and really believe the Lord's dealing with us about shame. Perhaps shame has kept you from ever receiving Christ and His grace in your life. Perhaps you've leveraged the power of shame in your kid's life or your spouse's life to get them to do what you want. You've turned it into your trusted ally so that easily you can rule over them. Perhaps shame has kept you from stepping out because you're afraid somebody might find out that there's a sordid history that you've not divulged to everyone else. Can I just tell you today, shame has to go. Don't allow shame to rule any of you. Maybe, maybe you're sitting here saying, Oh, but Pastor Travis, if you knew what I did when I was in my 20s and now I'm in my 70s, you would know that there's no way God could forgive. God can and will forgive you from that and completely wipe that out. And today could be your day that you walk out of shame's grip and control. If that's you, you're struggling with shame and have struggled with shame in the past. Would you just slip up a hand? If that's you, alright? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Friends, today is the day that God can and wants to set you free from it. Oh, if we would just but receive the amazing grace of Jesus because at the name of Jesus, every named thing, including shame, must bow. All across the room, would you stand right where you're at? Here's the way this is going to work. In a moment, our prayer team is going to come. And if you raised your hand because you're struggling with shame, we want to pray and agree with you. But if you have any need, if there's anything in your life that you say, Pastor, that's me. I've got a doctor's appointment this week. I just need someone to agree with me. I've got this going on in my family. We want to agree with you about that. But today, if you're struggling with shame, and please, 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 Don't rush to the doors right now. Give me just a couple of minutes because this could be the difference in somebody's eternity, okay? This could be the difference in somebody being set free to fulfill God's plan. So all across the room, if you raised your hand or you need prayer for anything, as our prayer team and elders make their way now, I want you to get out of your seat and begin to make your way. Rachel's gonna begin to sing. What a beautiful name it is. And I want us to respond to that. As she sings, I want us to fill this place with worship. But if you need prayer, I want you to come. Get out of your seats now and begin to make your way. Don't let shame keep you where you're at. Let shame be broken off of you with every step you take down an aisle, with every step you take forward. Begin to move this way.